2: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Thanks for tuning in to Behind the Knife. We have one quick announcement before we get started that will be of particular interest to anyone preparing for the oral boards. Recently, the good folks at Caliber Boards reached out to us to introduce their oral board review platform. Caliber offers live mock oral boards with top notch examiners at times that are convenient to you. You schedule the time. We had a chance to kick the tires, look under the hood, and take Caliber for a ride. And really, we think it's a fantastic resource that complements our oral board review very nicely. And to be clear, this is not a paid advertisement, but Caliber did want to extend a special offer to BTK listeners. So, Uh, We couldn't say no. They're offering only $25 for a full session. That's over 40 minutes. That's $125 off. Uh, So again, $25 for a single session using coupon code BTK2023 at caliberboards.com. Again, coupon code BTK2023 at caliberboards.com.
0: Hey, everyone. It's great to be back with you with the University of Washington's Minimally Invasive Surgery team. As always, I'm Mike Weikamp, and I'm joined by Doctors Nicole White, Andrew Wright, and Nick Citrua. We're really excited about today's clinical challenge episode, which is going to be a little bit different than most. Instead of focusing on pathology of our patients, we're going to flip things around a little bit and talk about the physical toll that surgery takes on us as surgeons and how we can mitigate some of the physical stresses by focusing on improvements to our ergonomics. To frame this discussion, we're going to talk about the physical consequences of open laparoscopic and robotic surgery, Uh, can have on a surgeon's body and go over some tips and tricks on how to avoid these issues and address them if you're already dealing with them. Dr. Cetrula, you want to kick things off for us?
3: Thanks, Mike. I'm very happy we're discussing this topic as this is something that I did not discuss at all in residency or fellowship and think it's something that the earliest levels of trainees need to pay attention to. It's definitely gaining traction within the surgical world and producing new research and guidance. And hopefully, bringing this to a broad audience like Behind the Knife, especially one that a lot of trainees listen to, can helpfully mitigate some surgeons' suffering in the long term. For those who have people who are interested in this kind of scholarship, research, and topic, uh, we'll post a link in the show notes to the Society of Surgical Er Ergonomics, which has resources that go beyond the depth we can go to in this short podcast. But we are lucky to have the founder of the Society of Surgical Economics. Just to my left, Dr. Andy Wright.
4: Uh, I can't take full credit at all. Uh, I'm one of a group of folks that uh,
0: put that together. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Citrullo and Dr. Wright. Dr. Wright, before we get into the weeds uh, with ergonomic challenges of the various surgical approaches, can you give our listeners maybe a 30,000-foot view of why they should spend time listening to us talk about ergonomics in the first place?
1: Absolutely, Mike. You know, It may seem that this topic is irrelevant when you're studying for your absides or trying to um, answer questions for surgery, but it's really an investment in your future going forward. You have to understand that your body is what makes you function, and if you feel terrible at the end of surgery, meaning joint pains, back pain, you're not going to be enjoying surgery overall. It limits your um, productivity and your overall well-being when you feel uncomfortable. To give you a sense of how widespread and costly surgery-related injury is, some of that excellent research Dr. Citrullo just mentioned has demonstrated that when surveyed, 87% of surgeons experienced work-related pain in seven in the prior seven days And that more than one in five surgeons have missed work as a result of surgery related injury. Over a third reduced their operative volume because of such injuries. In fact, two of our partners have recently had to sustain, um, time off, long-term time off because of ergonomic injuries. This is a topic that directly impacts our ability to take care of our patients, meet our obligations to our partners, and continue to find joy in surgery over the course of our career.
0: Well, you know, I have to admit that as a trainee, a large part of what drew me to surgery in the first place was this ethos of patient and team before self. But it really seems like the double edge of that mindset um, is that it creates a negative connotation around acknowledging the fact that we're human and that performing surgery hurts. Uh, Those numbers made me wonder if the grin and bear sort of mentality isn't a little bit short-sighted, even if our intention is to prioritize our patients and our teammates. Anyway, uh, with that said, Dr. Wright, how about we dive into some of the ergonomics of open surgery in particular? Can you help us understand the toll that open surgery takes on a surgeon's body?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we could have a whole podcast episode about um, open surgery, lap surgery, and robotic surgery. So this is really just going to be a high-level overview. Um, but hopefully, this will be a primer and sort of a, a key to start thinking about these these sorts of things. I think all three of us on this podcast have suffered our own issues. I know I've had to take time off at at least two points in my career because of ergonomic injury one one for my back and one for chronic elbow tendinitis. Um, so these things are are real and they they affect our lives as surgeons. Um, so. You know, I like to think of myself as a surgeon as like a high-performance athlete, and just like any high-performance athlete, you have to take care of your body so you can perform uh, on a high level at any time. Um, although I like to think of myself as an athlete, surgeons are also manual laborers, and we uh, stand in awkward positions in a harsh and unforgiving environment for hours at a time. Um, We put up with workplace conditions that factory workers don't have to put up with. And if OSHA ever came in and actually looked at the way we work, they would probably shut us down. Uh, You know, our techs get to take breaks. We don't take breaks. Uh, We really live in an environment that is uh, a setup for failure. Uh, And our workplace doesn't really care. The hospital has no vested interest in protecting us. So if we want to protect ourselves, we have to advocate for our, our own selves and our own profession. Um, we also have this, uh, awkward issue that all of our tools are made for a one size fits most, uh, instead of having tools that fit the patient, we have to fit ourselves to the tools. Uh, it's not just about hand size or height. Uh, we have a diversity of surgeons now, and we can't just all use the same tools that were developed, you know, 30 years ago by a team of all white male, six foot tall engineers. Um, So, uh, so we, again, we just have to advocate for ourselves on this.
0: Thanks, Dr. Wright. I'd love to sort of talk about the cultural piece of that and how things came to be this way. Uh, But for the sake of staying on time, do you have any advice for our listeners about best practices in particular for open surgery?
4: Yeah, I think that needs to start, and this really goes for any type of surgery, not just open surgery, but it needs to start before the operation does. Um, so we should think about our OR setup, our equipment choices, uh, our room setup, um, and, and you could really think about this as being part of our pre-surgery timeout. Just like we're going to think about, okay, what staplers am I going to need and what antibiotics are going we going to give the patient, we need to think about ergonomics during that initial uh, uh, setup time. Uh, things like making sure that you have a table height or that you have the steps that you need uh, or how are you going to get your e- headlights and your loop set up. Uh, all of those play a role in this. Uh, things like learning how to use a Buchwalder or an Omni uh, retractor so that you can uh, set up the room to protect your, your own back and your own neck. Uh, I mentioned headlights and loops. Uh, there's some good evidence that those increase the strain on your cervical spine significantly. Uh, so things like using the latest fiber optic loops or headlights, uh, and using loops that have an angle of declination that's set up to minimize strain. Um, I hated loops as a resident. One of the reasons I went into MIS is so I wouldn't have to wear <laughs> loops, and I think it's because my loops didn't fit right. Um, even like little things you would think, but wearing things like compression socks and making sure that we have gel pads to stand on, um, these add up on over the course of a good, you know, seven eight hour long abdominal wall
0: reconstruction. Got it. So now that we've sort of prepared correctly, we've got our anti-fatigue mats, our headgear, and loops are appropriately fitted and angled. Uh, how about once we're actually scrubbed? Are there some best practices tips you can give our listeners to sort of minimize the strain that open surgery will have on them once we're actually standing next to the table?
4: Yeah, I think it's a, a thing about constant attention. It's just like if you're going to do, you know, a Whipple, right? You're going to pay attention to every step of the case. We need to pay attention to the steps of of proper ergonomics. So uh, stand upright. Don't cock your hips on a weird angle. Keep your shoulders square and down sort of creeping up around your ears. Uh, you want to set up the table for the tallest person, uh, not necessarily the most senior person in the room. So set up the table for the tallest person, and then everybody else should have the steps that they need to accommodate. Uh, you typically want your elbows tucked in next to your sides. I see a lot of surgeons where their elbows start to float away and up, and that drives those their shoulders up towards the ears. Um, Keeping your weight evenly distributed, don't lock your knees. All these things are sort of common sense, but um, people forget about them because you're so focused on the patient and not paying attention to yourselves. And that really brings up one of my favorite things, which is the the idea of a postural reset. Um, So we get so focused and have this tunnel vision where we stop paying attention to ourselves. So every so often, when there's a natural break in the case, you know, you're waiting for a stapler reload, you're waiting for, um, you know, an instrument, uh, or you finished one portion of the case and you're about to move on to the next. So say you finished dissecting the cystic duct and you're about to clip it, well, that's a natural pause point. Take that pause point and reset. Stand up straight, drop your elbows, bring your shoulders down, take a big, deep breath. And then you can move forward once you've sort of uh, done that reset. I actually formally announce these, and I make everybody in the room do it, even anesthesia and the scrub nurse and the OR techs, um, because this affects not just the surgeon, but it really affects everybody in the room. Uh, And that's really related uh, to a a similar concept, which is called a micro break. Uh, So this is a concept that Taking a quick break every thirty to sixty minutes during an operation actually reduces the risk of surgeon injury. And people all the time say, "Well, I can't take a break in surgery because it's not—I don't know—it's not. uh, I'm I'm not intense enough. I got to pay attention to the patient at all times. I got to keep moving and keep moving forward. Um, But actually, if you take a break and do a thirty-second stretching routine. Um, you actually improve your focus and your physical performance. So there are RCTs, randomized control trials, that actually show that surgeon performance is better and the risk of errors goes down. And then because you're more efficient, it doesn't end up actually taking you any time and the length of the case is about the same or even improved. Um, So my friend uh, and colleague, Susan Hallback, who's also in the Society for Surgical Ergonomics, is at the Mayo Clinic, and she has a whole uh, website called OR Stretch, Uh, And we'll put a link to that website in our show notes. Um, But it has a whole series of videos that you can actually do of stretches while you're scrubbed in and and sterilely prepped with your gloves and everything on.
0: Yeah, I got to say, I thought that was wild that there's something that you actually put in that takes a specific amount of time that does not end up having a detectable increase in the case length. Um, But I think it really goes to show that this is important and um, your focus is something that wanes over time. And I think anything we can do to mitigate that is uh, time well spent. Um, but anyway, being the minimally invasive surgery group, let's try and move on to laparoscopic surgery. Uh, since we've started this MIS team, I've heard several surgeons, including some of you, quip that laparoscopic surgery is really just a way to transfer post-op pain onto the surgeon. Um, but jokes aside, laparoscopic surgery is here to stay and has its own set of ergonomic challenges. So Dr. Citrullo, can you take us through, um, what some of those are and then we'll get into best practices?
3: Happy to. <clears throat> Compared to open surgery, Laparoscopic surgery disassociates a surgeon's operative field and their visual field, degrades haptics, and limits to just four degrees of freedom while operating. These factors can create a host of new sources of strain and opportunities for suboptimal ergonomics. Similar to open surgery, most common physical complaint related to laparoscopic surgery is neck and back pain, but shoulder and elbow pain and upper extremity neuropathies also occur in the hands especially. Like open surgery, mitigating these injuries begins well before incision with the operating room setup with a now added dimension of having to consider monitors or tower positioning as well as the use of electrocautery instruments requiring a foot pedal or additional imaging techniques that require foot pedal activation. Room setup is crucially important and ideally your monitors should be positioned in such a way that the surgeon is able to stand squarely facing the anatomy and staring at the screen. No need for neck rotation, either at the eye level or 15 degrees below the eye level. And that monitors are actually placed slightly below eye level or at eye level and not looking upwards. If you're doing the sniff position like we do for intubation, your neck is not in a good position during laparoscopic surgery. Think about how you read a book, a magazine, or your phone. We almost always tilt our head downwards and shift our gaze downwards, which is the opposite of the common setup for laparoscopic surgeries. The other thing to consider is how to best position the patient. In Europe, for example, laparoscopic cholecystectomies are done with a split-leg table frequently for better surgeon ergonomics uh, to not be facing sideways at the table and operating. But ideally, you just stand with your feet and hips squarely facing the operative pathology But unfortunately, as we know, the patient's legs, the head of the table, and the the current setup in the operating room for how the patient lays often get in the way and limit the real estate available for the surgical team. Making sure to tuck arms and appropriately pad pressure points uh, will help this. But really, the consideration when you're doing upper abdominal quadrant cases, when you're doing um, adrenal cases, when you're doing spleen cases, you're going to be in a less than optimal physical position and trying to minimize the extraneous strain on your system and your body is really important. From personal experience, I developed significant shoulder pain and arthropathy uh, from doing uh, hiatal hernia surgery during fellowship um, because I often had to chicken wing my left arm out, putting a lot of strain on my shoulder. So laparoscopic surgery certainly has its own issues. And this doesn't even talk about Thumb neuropathy occurs from putting your fingers too far into laparoscopic instruments and things like that, which is really beyond the full scope of this talk. And the last thing I'll say before I let our other colleagues chime in on comments about this is uh, I can tell you that Dr. Andrew Wright has helped me personally in this, as he has many, many people uh, using the book, Walter, in the most efficient way. And if I hear anybody ever say, quote-unquote princess pads in my room, they are kicked out and not invited back because that is the worst term ever described.
0: Dr. Strula, so something that I haven't really thought about much since we started talking about ergonomics with this team was table height, particularly with laparoscopic surgery. Can you sort of give us some insights on how you think about that and how it differs maybe even a little bit from open surgery that Dr. Wright's already touched on?
3: Definitely. Similar to open surgery, there are some... Uh, concrete steps that can be used to create an ergonomically friendly common working height amongst the members of your team, especially when they differ in height. What's unique about laparoscopy is the length of instruments in our hands are often working six inches to a foot above the actual patient and the patient positioning, including Trendelenburg or reverse Trendelenburg, uh, can increase the height of our hands are working at, and increase making the challenge to keep our shoulders down and elbows close to your body even harder. For some of our shorter surgeons, when we're dealing with high BMIs, sometimes it's impossible to maintain this appropriate upper body position, even when we lower the bed to the lowest possible position, which is in general the a good rule of thumb, but is not a hundred percent hard and fast that the bed being as low down to the floor as possible will give you the optimal ergonomics since I've definitely hurt my shoulders and neck in some low table cases. One thing I'll add with steps, um, it's not
4: enough to have one step you stand on. I've actually had a scrub tech injure themselves uh, slipping and falling off of a step. So I actually like to make a platform of steps, which I think is safer.
3: Dr. White, Famously makes a four-step platform that sometimes has two levels, depending on
2: the We're height of our patients.
3: <laughs> Another thing to talk about with that is that there are stress relief pads that can be safely secured to standing steps in the operating room. Uh, and please consider the using those pads when you're also using steps in a safe way.
0: Got it. Thanks, Dr. Cicillo. So how about now that we've got our room prep monitors are where they're supposed to be, once we're actually scrubbing our laparoscopic cases, what should we be thinking about as we go through the course of an operation to make sure uh, to mitigate some of the stresses on our body?
3: One of the obvious but critical differences, again, between open and laparoscopic surgery is that we don't have access to the entire abdomen. And we have to make conscious decisions about our port position that will allow us to access the target anatomy. For most of us, port placement is an opportunity to get medical students or re- junior residents involved in the case, but this can create headaches down the line if ports are not placed properly. While the so called standard port position inf- are informed by the basic principles of triangulation, there are some patient and surgeon specific considerations that can make a big difference in terms of strain. Although we try to space our ports far apart when they're too far apart width-wise, it can create awkward angles for your shoulders, so adjusting your ports slightly closer together can allow for better shoulder-elbow position, avoiding significant AD and AB duction issues. And for larger patients, when you're examining the contour of the abdominal wall, this can create stress on our instruments and our bodies. I'm sure everybody has seen a port or a scope start to bend as we're pushing down really hard on it. And that's usually a patient position problem We are either tilting left or right or Trendelenburg or reverse Trendelenburg can help. Putting your ports perpendicular to the fascia and not perpendicular to the floor is also crucially important because if a port is skived, you then have to work at that angle. Whereas if it goes in perpendicular to the tissue, you have a much greater range of um, freedom and flexibility. Once your ports are in place, your ergonomic principles, again, are to keep your shoulders down, your elbows at your side, making it similar to uh, open surgery. And the idea of postural resets, I think, is crucially important, especially in laparoscopy, where we really get tunnel vision staring at a screen. One of the most common bad habits I've noticed in trainees and junior partners is a tendency for the non-retracting hand to get static and awkward and to clench up. So taking your hand out of the instruments and using more ergonomically friendly grips on instruments is certainly something that's important. Yeah,
4: Dr. Satrula mentioned earlier about uh, numbness in the thumb. That's actually something I lost feeling in my thumb for about six weeks as the MIS fellow. Uh, until I learned you have to uh, change the grip on your instrument, especially when, when you're in that static hold for a long time.
1: So I had the same thing happen to me during fellowship, hypothen nerve, nerve
0: palsy. Yep. I got to say, even as a a mid-level resident, that's happened to me several times, and it lasts for days or weeks, and it's a little disconcerting, hoping that that feeling will come back. Um, So I guess just for the sake of time here, let's move on to robot-assisted surgery. Uh, Dr. White, if the hype is to be believed, uh, robot surgery is the silver bullet for surgeon ergonomics, uh, and I think you probably do more uh, robotic cases than any surgeon I've ever met. Is it hype, or is there something to it?
1: (laughs) There's something real. But, you know, for a five foot size six glove wearing surgeon, um, I really bought into it after I was developing these discomforts with laparoscopy and open surgery um, and developing dangers from being on platforms of death, you may call it, three step stools <laughs> under each foot and then two behind me and they call this like this princess whole you know castle castle Yeah. yeah that they built me um and then i decided then i discovered the robot where i could actually sit down which is great but then your all your issues come from repetitive use issues right so you're just transferring um the issues onto what you're doing more of, which is the robotic surgery. And they're different movements. Um, so the reality is, is what Dr. Citrullo said is open transfers onto laparoscopic, laparoscopic transfers onto robot. Um, the nice thing about the robotic platform is the console is actually built, um, for you. So if you engage it correctly, um, you can mitigate some of the issues. So making sure you're um, appropriately flexed at the surgical spine and avoiding any hunched-over issues. Um, the constant repetitive movement of the fingers, um, is the injury that I got, which is trigger finger of my left middle finger from, um, squeezing and clutching. And what you have to remember is you're feeling with your eyes. So you actually are, can really have a death grip with your middle finger, um, which can develop some discomfort. Um, for, Cases that require a bedside assist, um, there are also issues uh, about the robotic arms that can actually hurt
0: your assistant if you're not careful. I've been your assistant a couple of times, (laughs) Dr. White. I know all about that. Um, But anyway, it sounds like it's a different set of ergonomic challenges, but challenges nonetheless. Uh, Can you take us through some best practices that you've come up with to sort of minimize the exposure to unnecessary strain doing as many robotic cases as you've done?
1: Definitely. Um, a lot of these points will be analogous to Dr. Wright and Dr. Citrulo's um discussion of open and laparoscopic. Okay, so we're talking about bracing. There's a tendency amongst early robotic series to allow their hands to drift upwards off the armrest. So similar with the chicken wing that Dr. Citrullo describes. So I'm always pointing out to the residents, remember to clutch, put your arms down. Um Remembering to do postural resets like what doctor Wright said um, constantly during the procedure is you, you get so tunnel visioned and you have to remind yourself to move your arms in, sit up straight, um, don't hyperextend your back. Um there is um the saying that A B C's of robotic surgery always be clutching, which is something that I always hear Dr. Citrullo, um tell residents, and that certainly helps. There are also a few other ergonomic things uh, unique to robotic surgery. So take the time to create your own custom profile in the console. And actually, when you're a resident taking, you know, in the if there's not a teaching console and the attendant says you have five minutes to do this, go to your profile. You know, that time is not going to be going to go away from your um, ability to participate in the operating room and save that so that it's comfortable for you. And then ask, ask someone to look at you. And I frequently do ask the nurse and say, Hey, do I look right? Does my, you know, is my body up straight? Am I leaning too much? Um, A locked chair is great. Um, and really make sure you're not drifting. I've definitely had this issue before. Um, you need to be engaged in the console. Um, you need to keep your knees and elbows approximately 90 degrees to each other. And then when it comes to an assistant, so it's really important, appropriate trocar placement but that's for a different podcast on robotics but to remember that if you are the person placing the assistant um port you have to place it behind um the camera so it has to be triangulated between ports to avoid for your safety as the assistant actually so you don't get beat up by one of the robotic arms
0: awesome Thanks, Dr. Wright. Really insightful stuff, as always. Um, for the sake of time, there's a handful of other quick topics I wanted to address before we close things out. Uh, Dr. Wright. I know you have some thoughts um, about how surgical culture impacts our physical well-being and longevity, particularly with respect to ergonomics, and I was hoping we could spend a little bit of time just touching on that.
4: Yeah, so that's not really a quick topic. <laughs> we could talk for a long time about surgical culture, um, but I think it's important to know um uh, surgery is a marathon, a career in surgery is a marathon, not a sprint. And if we don't take care of ourselves, we're not going to be here to take care of our patients or our families. Um, it's like the flight attendants, you know, they say at the beginning of the flight, uh, to put the, the face mask on yourself before helping others. You got to take care of yourself so that you can, uh, take good care of your patients. Um, we don't really do our patients any good if we have to take six weeks off because we can't operate. Um, uh, So I think things like talking about this is actually really important. I mean, it's something all surgeons deal with, and we don't really discuss it. Um, We need to talk about it with our trainees, and our trainees need to start some of these practices when they're young, because I still deal with some back issues that started when I was a resident. Um, Even things, silly things like um, transferring a patient from the bed to the table. Like, that's how I hurt my back the first time, right? Um, I think we need to get more uh, uh, diverse surgeons involved in product development and working with industry. Uh, our instruments were not designed for the diversity of surgeons that exist today. Uh, and I think um, uh, uh, normalizing the fact that we're all human. Um, and that goes not just for ergonomics. That goes for everything in surgical culture. But, uh, but since we're talking about ergonomics now, I think we just have to recognize these things and, and pay attention to them. Um, I also think uh, one last topic I just want to throw out there is that you can prepare yourself physically for the operating room, and um, there's some good evidence that surgeons that exercise have better quality of life and less burnout. Uh, and But despite that, most surgeons don't get recommended amount of exercise. Uh, An aerobic exercise is great, but you need to do some core strengthening. Uh, So some people get it through yoga or or lifting. Uh, I get it through Pilates, but but you really need to do that to prepare yourself for the operating room. Uh, And then the last thing I'll throw out there, Dr. Satrula mentioned the Society for Surgical Ergonomics. It's a great society. It's really welcoming of residents as members. And so I would uh, encourage anybody listening who's interested to check us out.
0: Thanks, everyone, for a really great discussion, as always. Uh, Since we've been at this for a while now and covered quite a bit of ground, I'm going to try and pull things together for some take-home points. Uh, First, I think it's obvious now that surgery is a contact sport, and like contact sports, injuries are common. uh, But we have the potential to reduce our um, exposure to these sorts of injuries uh, by taking proactive steps to protect ourselves. Uh, In open surgery, uh, this means things like standing upright, keeping our weight balanced, and trying to consciously control the tendency for our heads to drift over the field and uh, bending our cervical spines. Uh, And if you're using adjuncts like headlights and loops to make sure that these things are properly calibrated so that they don't encourage poor posture. For laparoscopic surgery, uh, as Dr. Citrullo mentioned, room setup and port uh, port placement set the tone for the whole case and should not be done as as an afterthought. Um, And you have to think about how things like port placement will affect your neck and shoulder positioning and elbow positioning throughout the case. Uh, and we all, especially as trainees, need to pay particular attention to our non-dominant hand and uh, as chicken winging, as my attendings like to describe my my, <laughs> my operating. Um, and finally, for robotic surgery, um, optimal, uh, optimal ergonomics involve having your knees and elbows at approximately 90 degrees in your forearms, almost always on the armrests, and to be focusing on always being clutching, the ABCs. Uh, And then finally, don't forget about how your behavior at the council might be affecting your poor assistant at the bedside. Um, Finally, even if you do all these things and perform surgery as thoughtfully as you can, it will still take a toll on your body. And it's important that we take care of ourselves and our teammates uh, when injuries do occur so that we can continue to take care of our patients for the whole uh, of our careers. Uh, That's all we have for you this time. We appreciate you tuning in as always. And until next time, dominate the day.